It's Mercedes from the Right Now series, and tonight we're joined here by essayist, poet, and former director of Inhinga Press, Rick Campbell. A few weeks ago, we had a wonderful, long conversation about poetry, publishing, and the future of the writing industry. And then I promptly discovered the recording equipment I used didn't catch a word. Nothing. Nada. Zilch. So, in true millennial fashion, I spent a weekend sulking in a onesie, eating cookies, and binge-watching cartoons. And once I decided to grow back up, we were at it again. So, I hope you enjoy this podcast filled with bathrooms, murder mysteries, Americana, lizards, and a hobby that turns Rick into a human Garmin. Oh, and uh, poetry's in there somewhere. I think. Maybe. Anywho... Grab a drink, because you're not going anywhere. Let loose, and let's hit the open road, shall we? Hello? I don't even know if I'm an introvert. I just have... Most of my life has been an accident, and so the current accident is I live alone. So you know exactly how to get rid of a body, right? Yeah, I could probably do that. Right. Moving on. Rick Campbell is the founding director of the Florida Literary Arts Coalition and its Other Words Conference. He teaches in the Sierra Nevada University Low Residency MFA program and also teaches English at Florida A&M University. But how did he become a poet? Where did Rick Campbell begin? Um, well, number one, my experience before I became a writer had absolutely nothing to do with writing and or reading. I was just a kid and, um, I went to a company high school and didn't have a lot of people in it. And I was probably the, one of the I mean, I was probably one of the smartest people there, which wasn't saying much. And um, so I didn't read much and I didn't write. And But I listened to a lot of music and I decided that, um, well, I can almost pinpoint the, the way it happened. Like after I graduated from high school, I, I didn't think I could go to college. I, just, I didn't, you know, I didn't have any money and this will sound naive, but I didn't know there was, a, I didn't know about financial aid. Mm-hmm. So I had depressed myself and thought that I couldn't go to college anyway, because I didn't have enough money. I was working almost 40 hours a week in high school. Mm. So I went to the, um, but then some, some teacher who I'd been given a hard time to told me what financial aid was. And, uh, but it was too late to go to college. So I went to the community college I was sitting in the cafeteria and there was this kid who would come in and play guitar and sing songs. And, um, and like I say, I listened to a lot of music and every now and then he'd sing a song I had never heard before. So one day I sort of got up the courage. I said, I said, man, who wrote that song? I never heard it before. He said, I did. And I said, what do you mean? He says, I wrote the song. I said, it just didn't dawn on me that you could write a song. So, um, so I said, wow, he wrote a song. 
worked at Morrison's Cafeteria. So I went to Morrison's Cafeteria that night, and on the back of the, you know, whatever menu sheets or whatever, um, I wrote these song lyrics. And I brought them back to him the next time I saw him at the school. And he said, yeah, that's pretty good. And the next, then he came back the next time we ran into each other. And he had written music for my lyrics, and, and he sang my songs to me. And so I was like, I was hooked. I was like, man, that is so cool. So I started writing song lyrics. And um, and at this point in my life, I didn't even play. I mean, now I'm a pretty good harmonica player. But at that point in my life, I didn't play music. So you know, I didn't really have a concept of the song's music. But anyway, I would give these songs to Daniel and um, these lyrics to Daniel. And a couple of times he wrote songs for them. And um, and this went on for a while. But like band, I guess it dawned on other people before it dawned on me that since I didn't play music, I wasn't going to really be a songwriter. And, and it certainly dawned on Daniel because he started taking the best songs I gave him and putting them in his songs. And, um, <laughs> Okay. He'd play him. When he got to one of my lines and he was playing on stage, he would just point at me. That was the way I got credit for it. But um, anyway, it was like Christmas of 1975, and I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and these folks that lived up there that were very talented and smart who had been to college. Uh, for Christmas, they gave me four books of poetry, and I, I was kind of shocked because I had never read a book of poetry. But they gave me four books of poetry, and um, the you know the underlying unspoken message was give up the songwriting kid and try this poetry. And um, so I read Philip Levine and Richard Hugo and Charles Bukowski, and I thought, wow, this is poetry. I didn't know this was poetry. I could do this. I mean, I would still, I can't say that I would still rather be a songwriter, but um, you know, I take great pleasure in listening to music i listen to music eight or ten hours a day and um and like i say i have i played a lot of harmonica in my life and played in bands and i really like you know i like being on stage i like that that life i like playing music with people too you know one of the things about poetry is pretty solo so it's nice to play with other people and do music and so, yeah, but it was sort of like, I mean, I tried to write songs, and occasionally I still try, but as a harmonica player, I still don't know enough about music to actually, you know, write the song. So music informs even, you know, the rhythm of music and the breath I learned from playing harmonica. I'm sure all that informs my sense of line and the poetry and my sense of line break, but in a a virtually unconscious way. I I would never, I can never explain it in a proper theoretical manner. I just know how to do it. One thing I have noticed in these interviews is that poetry often forms itself through a love of music and then the love of language. Here, Rick Campbell reveals how he works with that language. No. <laughs> Yes. Um, most of the poems I've ever written, I have written them when I was reading poetry. So 
I don't have a number, but maybe, you know, 70 or 80% of the poems I've written, I wrote them while reading poetry. The other 30% I probably wrote while um, listening to music or driving, but when I'm driving, I'm listening to music. So, um, you know, I hate to say this out loud because you're taping it, but I, in the last couple of years, I've written a lot of poems in the bathroom. <laughs> um, you know, I keep my, I keep poetry books in the bathroom and I live alone. So that's brilliant. I can, the, I can stay in the bathroom forever if I want. So, you know, that's, that's so I brilliant. Have my, I have my writing stuff and my three or four books of poetry and, um, and so I guess what it is, as long as I have something, if I'm reading a poem, reading a book of poems, um, if it's good, I'm probably going to get the, get an idea. I don't steal the lines from the poem, but you know, somebody will, in fact, your really great example is, um, you know, from Jerry's book, Ash, you know, I was reading it and I thought, oh, you know what? I have ashes. I had ashes in my life, too. And so I wrote a poem, you know, called Ash. Mm-hmm. And it has nothing to do with Jerry's except that you know, I grew up in a steel mill town. I grew up covered with ashes. And for me, the, um, the composition of music is not something I composition of poetry is not something I think about if usually what happens is I will hear something I'll either hear hear a line from the song or more often I'll be reading poetry and something in the poem will make me decide I can write and I will write the whole poem and then so I don't think about a poem either Mm -hmm. if, if I get this idea or this line or this word, I start writing and I write until I'm, until it's over. But I don't think about what I'm going to write. I don't think about what I'm going to write before I write. I, you know, I don't think, oh, I think I'll write a poem about that osprey in the tree. You know, I might see the osprey in the tree and start writing about it, but I don't ever think about what I'm going to write. I mean, I, I absolutely don't think about the writing as I'm writing, and, and I just start, and then and then when it then then it's over, and then I'm done. Um, and if I don't write the whole poem in one session, then it wasn't worth it, and I don't you know, I don't write a half of the poem one day and then write the other half another. Nation. Probably both. Um, probably both and Jack Kerouac's on the road and, you know, coming of age in 69 and 70 and 71, you know, when everybody that I knew was traveling somewhere. So, I mean, I was more, I'm more organized in my travel than I am in my writing. <laughs> you know, I know where the highways are. I know where they go. I know six ways to get somewhere. Um, I know how to get there, not on the interstate. I know that if you, you know, intersect US 22 in Ohio, where it's going to end up. So um, 
I certainly, and like I say, I study maps before I go when I'm not going. I study maps when I get back to see where I was. Mm-hmm. I've never put that much effort. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little facetious. I work hard on poetry too, but, <clears throat> but I have studied the highways. I used to go to the library and read the history of the U.S. highway system. Oh, wow. I can tell you everything about the origins of the U.S. highway system that it was put together in 1925 and 26 and why U.S. 30, you know, which are the transcontinental highways, all that other junk. So, Campbell is the kind of guy that winds around both a little adventurous, but also cautious. Like looking both ways before crossing the street. When I asked about what he wishes he had known first starting out and how becoming a teacher has changed him in his writing, he gives the most open, honest, humbled answer I could have imagined. Yeah, everything. (laughs) No, I mean, to be honest with you, I ask my students, I used to ask them, especially the writing students, I'd ask them, what do you not need to know? I would like to know everything about everything. And if I could, that would be great. And if I had a goal in life, that might be it. Um, And it might be why I was an American studies major in college and because there was no... It was the widest open subject I could find, you know, like there's no classes you had to take. You can take any class that said American, you know, American art, American literature, American history, American philosophy, American, you could, if it said American, you could take it. (laughs) That's, that's the way I wanted to do it because if I could figure out if I could know, or I, I wasn't dumb enough to think I could know everything, but the more I knew, the more I'd have to write about, or better, the more I knew, the more things that could enter my poem when, when either they should or that they wanted to. And I get the feeling things enter my poem. I don't make them show up there. Mm-hmm. So the more I know, the more I have heard or read or seen on a map or heard in a song or know about quantum mechanics and Heisenberg uncertainty principles, the more I know, the more chance it has of showing up in a poem and making the poem work. Oh, not, not all that much positively. Um, my you know, I I taught at a I taught at a small um, HBCU historically black college university. We didn't have creative writing, um, and we didn't have American studies, and so not much of what I might have learned about in college did I find. Well, it made me a better teacher, but it didn't teaching didn't make me a better writer. So, 
I mean, I would have written more if I didn't spend a, a whole lot of time mm-hmm. teaching and especially grading papers. Um, the writing, you know, my creative writing background, my, all, you know, all the things I know, you know, probably made me a more interesting teacher. But um, I don't teach writers. I've only had, you know, in my 35 or four years at the university, um, I would, I think only three of the students I taught um, became writers. So I don't mold writers. I mold, I'm, you know, 98% of my students are young black kids. They need mm-hmm. a job. Mm-hmm. And I don't really, since I teach freshman comp, I don't particularly mold them to become nurses or doctors or physicists or businessmen either. But, um, but no, I don't. I have. I have. I would say that for the most part, I have really never taught writing. I mean, I teach a writing class sometimes, but I can say only I think only three of the people in all those years wanted to be writers and um, became writers, majors and business majors, and uh, you know. Historically, black colleges and universities don't, most of them don't have a lot of English majors mm-hmm. because the, the kids are, they need jobs, they need money, their families are poor, um, you know, they don't probably have the luxury of being writers. So even though a lot of them can write well, um, they they don't entertain the idea of being a writer. For the most, well, that's, I would say in 30-some years, if you figure I have 100 to 120 students, to do 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 So we're talking, you know, whatever, seven or 8,000 students, three of them were writers. But lots of them were good writers. Only three of them had the idea of writing as a career. Uh, and I would say of those three, only one I don't know how you measure success, but only one might be somebody that will be heard of someday. What's in a voice? Well, everything. There's the voice of the reader, and then there's the voice of the writer. I've started to imagine Rick Campbell as the man with a voice like a classic car. The hum of an idling engine, toes out the window, shrugged shoulders. When added to his poems, it creates a dichotomy between wanderlust and mourning. I wondered about how he found this voice, its changes, and whether or not he, himself, admired it. Voice. Well, you got to remember that I didn't particularly... Like those first books of poetry I read, um, I was 24 years old when I first read poetry. So um, I'm sure it took a couple of years of, like I didn't write a poem until I was 25 going on 26. And mm-hmm. as with all people, I'm, I would say I was imitating for a little bit. But um, 
I had a sense of, I probably had an overrated sense of my voice when I was young. I was never young. I mean, I was a beginner, let's put it that way. So, in other words, I two things happened. One is, it might have been a function of ego, but it was also a function of, you know, by the time I went to college, I hitchhiked across the United States three times and, you know, had nine jobs. And um, so I thought I knew everything. And so that probably gave me a over overinflated sense of voice. Um, but also I was... All my early work, I was writing about things nobody else. I was writing about Pittsburgh when I was in Florida, or I was writing about hitchhiking through California. So I just I wrote about things other people didn't necessarily know, at least the younger people. So that made me, or made them, made me think that I had this original voice, but it wasn't voice as much as it was experience. And then eventually, I probably, probably maybe five or six years after I started seriously writing poems, I might have come into a voice of my own. Maybe on my second book, that probably, that would have been a good place to, I might say I had it by my time my second book came out. You know, I I liked it. I, I was good. I mean, I... I mean, I didn't dislike the imitative voices because of what that, I mean, I wasn't clearly, I just, I knew I was imitating other people didn't necessarily accuse me of it. But um, what happened, it wasn't so much a voice. I mean, I just, I have a fairly normal voice in poetry. It's kind of part musical, part narrative. But I guess what I did, two things. I got comfortable with what I could and couldn't do. Like I knew I wasn't going to be terribly experimental. Um, I wasn't going to have metaphors that nobody could understand. Uh, and I, but I learned, or one thing I learned or when I started to feel comfortable anyway was this ability, this idea that. Um, it comes from Richard Hugo's idea of the from the triggering town that you know you have a there's something that triggers the subject of a poem and then during the course of the poem the true subject you know, will come out and you have to give up the triggering idea and let the poem you know, let the poem find its subject and if you if that was good I that was important to me but then I also realized that I had this theory of that it's not possible to have too many things in one poem. That so that that was why I like knowing as many things as I know. And I would I believe in this sort of it's called on um, what's it called? Oppression, A A C C E T I O N, I think. But it's sort of like I see the poems as being a horizontal composition that, you know, I'm writing about a beetle and then a tree and then a frog and then a spider and then music and then clouds and then um, the book of Job and then disaster 
and death and resurrection, but more or less all at the same time, and one's not more important than the other. And you compose the poem, poem horizontally, and when you go from one subject to another, you leap and land horizontally. So it's not, the poem isn't vertical, one subject in the poem isn't more important necessarily than the other one. And what holds the poem together is music and tone, not not uh, a logical sense of subject. I mean, if I'm going to start writing a poem, you know, how long does it take to write 20 lines or 30 lines? So if I'm going to write a 30-line poem, I write it all 30 lines at once. So it takes me hours. Now, see, I, I don't, you, you must be thinking. <laughs> Stop thinking to start writing. But I don't work on essays that way. Essays are labor intensive. You know, it's, I mean, that's why it's taken me, um, it's taken me maybe 20 years to finish a book of essays. And I also don't write books of poetry quickly. I mean, I write one poem quickly, but um, I've only written six books of poetry in 40 years. So, you know, uh, it takes a long time to write a book of poetry and and maybe the various many things I did in my life slowed down the making of, of, of books. Um, because especially when I was you know, teaching full time, you know, and my daughter was young and all those other things, I um, I taught I always taught four classes per semester. That's a lot of classes. Mm-hmm. And they were mostly freshman comps, so that's a lot of students. Oh. So oh. I was teaching, I was, a lot of what I wrote in the, during those years were written in the month of May because the semester, the spring semester was over and the fall semester hadn't started yet and my daughter was still in school. So, yeah, that was the freest time. But I have more time now. That's, yeah. Um, time isn't sort of a factor as much as um, endurance or motivation, stuff like that. And I'm, I'm also spending a lot more time on the essays, which would take me forever to write because there's more words and I don't have a sense. Like the poem is over when the words stop coming out of me. Um, you know, the essay. The essay has structure, beginning, middle, ending, places to go, constant need to be revised. Um, and even though I'll, I will revise a poem for a long time, um, you know, you know, even the longest of my poems is, I think the longest poem I ever wrote was only three pages long. So um, just there's not as many words. So it doesn't take as much time to revise them. And, um, you know, get them in a position to think that they're done. So, I mean, all those other things I did in my life, I don't know, you know, maybe in 40 years I would have written 12 books of poems if that was all I was doing, but, but who knows? You can't learn it. You have to just do it. Mm-hmm. And then when eventually it sort of works, if you believe it, if you believe in the freedom it also means you're going to waste a lot of lines and a lot of time. You know, you're going to go, oh, man, that didn't work, you know. But 
yeah, I think, you know, the, I, I, I don't, and maybe by now can't write the, the, the tight and camps and cat encapsulated poem. I write poems that, that move a lot. And, um, Richard Jackson does that a lot too. I always like what he does. And Jerry does it for that matter. Jerry, Jerry's poems are, are, I would call them horizontal rather than vertical. Rick Campbell plays many parts as a literary citizen, but he's most widely known as his part in Inhinga Press. Could being a publisher and a writer change your perspective? I asked whether taking on both roles has made him a better writer or changed the way he reads. Honestly, I don't think it did. Mm -hmm. I mean, being a publisher was, there were a lot of really wonderful things about it, you know, discovering a new writer, making a book for a writer, um, sort of, especially if it was a first book, maybe watching that writer through the the years to come. Um, certainly, you know, getting to be lifelong friends with people like Keith Ratzliff and Frank Gaspar and, and Jerry and lots of folks like that, Robert Dana. But I didn't necessarily... You know, it didn't, I didn't shape my trying to make a book based. Well, I can't say that. I mean, you know, I'd read thousands of manuscripts on their way to being books. And maybe that helped me with the notion of, you know, how to make a book out of my own poems. But frankly, no, I don't, I, if there's the worst, Probably the thing I am least good at as a poet is um, composing the entire manuscript. You know, because it takes five or six years to write a book of poetry. Um, you can't. There's no. There was no theme to the composition of the poems. Mm -hmm. So one of my problems is, you know, I have like 65, 70 pages. It's time to make a book out of it. You know. I have as much trouble as anybody trying to figure out what order to put those poems in. Um, so, I, you know, reading those hundreds and hundreds of Anhinga manuscripts and trying to, you know, help edit them didn't help me at all, probably, except for giving me more perseverance, maybe. <clears throat> and sort of the time I spent putting all those in all the Anhinga work probably the time was time taken away from my own writing too but that doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it I enjoyed it I had a great time see when you read as the publisher you know you're trying to like what's good what worked and then unfortunately you focus too much on especially if you're you know judging what you're going to accept what you're going to reject um, you know if you see too many poems that aren't good, too many poems you think aren't good, you know, then you stop reading the manuscript. Um, so it was, you know, it, like it made it, might've made it hard to read poetry purely for enjoyment, you know, because it was hard to turn off that editorial sense, like, is this good? And it, so if it influenced my reading, you know, it, 
it might be one of the reasons why I would read uh, read poems until I wanted to write one of my own. Like I didn't feel like I should finish a book of poetry before I started writing. As soon as I wanted to write, I would start writing. And the other thing is it made me maybe, you know, like if I wanted to read poetry for enjoyment, you know, maybe I would go back to the books I thought were good. Like I didn't, like I knew when I read Philip Levine and James Wright and Richard Hugo and Frank Gaspar and all the folks that I think are good. I could read them and just go, wow, that's that's good. I didn't have to read them with like this critical sense of where did they, where does it for me go wrong? Um, so it might be that, you know, when I was young, when I was trying to learn how to write poetry, um, if you remember, you know, I started college having only read four books of poetry in my whole life. So I had this feeling that I was, especially when I went to the library and I saw how many books there were, I had this feeling that I was way behind. And so I would go to the library almost every day and um, and just grab, in fact, I didn't really know anybody, so it didn't matter who I read. So I would gather books off the shelf. I'd, you know, I could get as, I'd take as many books as I could fit in each hand and take them over to a chair by the window and read them. So I was, I'm not kidding, I would read I probably read 25 or 30 books of poetry a week. Holy crap. But I didn't read any, I didn't have a, a, a reading list. You know, I would go to the library and I would get as many books off the shelf as I could carry without dropping them. Um, and then I would go read them. Um, I can't say I finished them all. So I didn't think it was, if I didn't enjoy it, I might stop reading it, but but I, I just read as much poetry as you could possibly, I could possibly read. And back in those days, I read sort of uncritically. I was just like, wow, that's, that's good. That's, this pleases me. I would like to write like that. Those were my criteria. And then, you know, later when I was a writer, I, I mean, an editor I mean, or a publisher, I was having to say to myself, this is good. We'll publish it. Um, this isn't good enough. We won't publish it. So that you know, that changes the emotional approach. There might be more poetry I don't like than there is that I do like, but there's there's so much of it out there that doesn't you know, that doesn't mean I'm going to run out of things to read. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not. I'm not. If I don't like it, it's not now that I don't like it in the sense that I wouldn't publish it. It's just that I don't like that one. I'm not going to. So I'm, you know, I read a lot of, you know, like I'll read the Georgia Review or Kestrel or I'll read journals to see who's in there. And um, I read books of poetry, of course. But I've been reading a lot of the, I mean, I spent the last year rereading James Wright and Philip Levine and Gerald Stern. And, and other poets like that. So I'm, and I read a lot. I mean, I read a lot of prose now too. I didn't used to read prose at all. Um, I'm, I'm reading Luis Alberto Urea. You know, he's a fine fiction writer.
Wow. So I'm more eclectic in my reading, but I mean, I've read about, I must have read 100 British crime novels in the last two or three years. Oh my God. And American crime novels, too. You know. So you know exactly how to get rid of a body, right? Yeah, I could probably do that. Rick Campbell has won a Pushcart Prize, an NEA Fellowship in Poetry, and two Poetry Fellowships from the Florida Arts Council. His poems and essays have appeared in the Georgia Review, Prairie Schrooner, Fourth River, Kestrel, Puerto de Sol, New Madrid, and other journals. He has six collections of poetry under his belt. The more recent Gunshot Peacock Dog, published through Madville in 2019. An homage summed up in the word desiderium, a yearning to return to what was lost and can never be again. Something I feel resonates more and more with us as the days of coronavirus linger ahead. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, it is time to end our show. A huge thank you to Rick Campbell for his time, wisdom, and friendship. A thank you to the Frostburg State University Center for Literary Arts and its director, Jen Brown, for all the support and love in the process. And a marvelous amount of gratitude to each and every one of you for tuning in, edging us on, giving tips and resources, and on bad days, telling us it's okay to sulk in pajama bill. I want each and every one of you to remember that you are still writers, even if you're not writing right now. There will come a day when the pen, or if you're a techie, the keys, will feel less heavy. And when that day arrives, we will be back to no nonsense, no excuses, regularly scheduled writing. Well, maybe just a little nonsense. Um seems to get progressively harder to be um, so totally alone. It's like running a marathon, you know, like when you're not in shape, the end, the finish line keeps getting farther away. 